Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. And here we go after another incredible week. Most noteworthy candidates may be inflation rate. It came in 7.7%. You know, but I've always had a problem with the focus on that number instead of what that number actually means to us in terms of maybe our food prices or gas energy prices, shelter. For example, at this rate, the average Canadian driver is going to spend something like $800 more on gasoline compared to they did last May. I'm going to talk to Ozzy Jurek, by the way, about the extra money needed for mortgages against the backdrop of rising rates with now the overwhelming consensus we're going to get another three-quarter percent rate hike in July. I'm looking forward to chatting with Real Investment Advisors Lance Roberts on how far we can actually push those rates before we crush housing or crush stock prices, every other asset, as well as the economy as a whole. And I'm sure that, and by the way, I think Lance will have something extremely surprising where he thinks the money's going to be made in the next year or two. So stay tuned for that. And I'm sure that every one of us has noticed the big jump in food prices. But maybe we didn't hear. This is just an example of what's happening to us. You know, last February, we got 8.4% jump in milk prices. Last February. Hey, the Dairy Commission's already got another 2% increase coming in September. Well, the bottom line, the rising cost of living is going to be with us for a while. I'll get more on that during the show. But first, I got to saddle up the old hobby horse again. Here I go. We've come to the end of the school year where hundreds of thousands of students graduate throughout the country without a working knowledge of the basics in personal finance or economics or business or finance itself. Because when you scratch just a little bit below the surface, every one of those financial challenges that we've been talking about, inflation or gas prices, food and rising rents, are directly the result of government policy driven by ideology and ignorance. I say ignorance because, come on, the goal wasn't an all-out assault on our cost of living, but that's what we've got. I continue to ask, though, who specifically benefits from graduating students without a working knowledge of the basics in economics or business or finance or uh, you know, personal finances? And just as importantly, who does it hurt the most? Because it's not my kids. They can get all the information on those subjects at home. Maybe your kids have that advantage too. Make no mistake though, it's a huge leg up as they go forward into the adult world. Now, I do pre appreciate that a small percentage of students are lucky enough to have a teacher who's interested. And there are some good ones. But I think that's the rare exception. As are the students who attend maybe a specific skills training course. But my concern is for the children who don't have that kind of support at home. I mean, where specifically are they supposed to learn about finance, economics, or subjects like entrepreneurialism, which will be a pivotal uh, skill to have in the future? What about the basics of even getting a job, like handling an interview, let alone the personal financial knowledge to help them survive? You know, I was blown away earlier, just a month or two ago, the BNN, BNN Bloomberg Rates.ca had a survey. They found that 29% of respondents who have or are planning to get a mortgage, we're unsure about the impact of rising rates. You know, our lack of knowledge, though, in this stuff makes us vulnerable, especially when we're in a period like now, historical change. I mean, there's a lot more to be said about the lack of educational focus when it comes to subjects like the basics of economics, finance, entrepreneurialism, business. But the point is, it's not even part of the discussion. But, you know, somehow there's room for every social justice issue on the menu. I'm just going to give you one example, boy, and just forgive me, because this is one that's been bothering me. It's a red button issue for me. 
You know, but when Greta Thunberg came to Canada in the fall of 2019, we had tens of thousands of school children allowed, some would say encouraged, to skip school to join the protest. You know, at the time, I heard a lot of people, including some I know well, say something along the lines that, isn't it great to see our children so involved? My response was, it would be a lot greater if they had any clue about what they were talking about. Instead, they rallied around Greta Thunberg's cry to get off fossil fuels by 2025 or face climate calamity. Well, I don't believe for a second that she or any of the other students understood that pushing an end to fossil fuels when we don't have an alternative energy source to power our electrical grid is the driving force behind today's record gasoline and diesel prices. It's devastating for the most vulnerable people in society. You know what? Because ignorance comes at a cost. And in this case, the impact on Canada's poor and the world's most vulnerable is devastating. You know, I wonder if there's a person in the educational establishment who explained that to our graduating students. Is there a single student or teacher who cheered them on, who understands that by saying no to natural gas, we're also saying no to fertilizer components like ammonia and urea, and saying yes to rising food prices, to shortages, even starvation. If one of the public education's most important jobs has got to be to be teaching and encouraging critical thinking. Well, if that's the case, then there's been an abysmal failure. A celebrated economist Thomas Sowell states, the purpose of education is to give the student the intellectual tools to analyze, whether verbally or numerically, and to reach conclusions based on logic and evidence. As John Agresto, former university president of St. John's College states, the job of teachers is to liberate minds, not capture them. But more frightening is that these students grow up to be political leaders, voters for sure, activists, without the critical thinking skills, which guarantees an avalanche of unintended consequences. The bottom line, though, ignorance fuels the energy crisis and the devastating consequences that we're just beginning to experience. Because my forecast is clear, by the way, energy crisis is far from over. It won't be a straight line, but prices are going much higher. The inescapable truth that our politics, well, I mean, as I say, it's just so troubling. But instead of protecting our most vulnerable citizens, they're hurting them. And it's in areas far beyond just the efforts to fight climate change that have produced the energy crisis. I mean, we have sovereign debt. Of course, we have inflation, dismal economic growth prospects amidst the sea of other unintended consequences. So let me finish by asking again, who does it benefit when we graduate students without a working knowledge of personal finance, economics, business, or the financial system itself? Because it's certainly not the students. As I say, great show planned for you. You're going to love Lance Roberts. I'll tell you that right now. I got a great quote of the week. I've got a great goofy award, shocking stats. But before I get to all that, I just want to say we had our Special Olympics Invitational Golf Tournament uh, on Tuesday. And thanks to the great help we have on our team here at uh, Money Talks with Grant and Nina pushing so hard to make it a success. But we've got people like Wheaton Precious Metals jumped in, Burnaby Firefighters Charitable Society, thanks to them, uh, Fort Capital and Newmont. Uh, we had BMO Capital Markets, Canaccord Genuity, National Bank Financial, Castles Brock and Blackwell, uh, Deloitte, Fleur. Uh, you know, we had the Duick Auto Group's been special for us on everything we do at Special Olympics. And of course, the Province and the Sun newspapers. So my point only being, you know, a lot of times you hear people knock business. I'll tell you, without businesses' contribution, the people who work there as volunteers, et cetera, none of the charitable work that benefits our communities so uh, magnificently 
would take place. So I want to just send that big thank you out for everyone who bid on the auction. Maybe you won an auction prize, donated one for sure. And uh, of course, everyone who participated. So a big thank you to that. It's the kind of thing, especially as we come to Canada today, we can salute because that's what makes this country special. More coming your way. Stay with us. You know, one of the things I highlight is that we've come to, I know it's a cliche, but how about the cliches accurate? We've come to unprecedented times now. And one of the big challenges is we've got rising inflation, of course, and we're raising interest rates, but are we doing it into a slowing economy? I mean, this isn't the kind of stuff that happens all the time. I guess I'm desperate always to say to people, hey, we've got to pay attention. Big stuff is happening. That's why I'm bringing on Rob Levy of Border Gold. Rob, I saw an interesting note from the Bank of Nova Scotia, though, that here's what caught my eye. They actually were critical of the federal government. And that caught my eye because the big banks, I think, could play even a bigger role and have chosen not to because they don't want to run afoul of the federal government. So this was a bit of an outlier for me. It it was, Mike. And it's interesting, this note, too, because the level of criticism that they're throwing at the federal government in regards to spending is almost a bit of a different angle than they've taken over the last year, 12 months, where some criticism would say, okay, you're increasing government spending. Focus should be to productivity. How do we make the economy more efficient? So people want to invest in Canada. Uh, But this time, it's a criticism of federal spending. And the reason for the criticism is they're saying you're only making inflation worse. You're making the Bank of Canada's job even harder. Well, and as I said, that's not the first time I've seen that working at cross purposes. But let's elaborate a little bit specifically what are they saying in that along those lines, I mean. Uh, yeah, so it, what the what Bank of Nova Scotia's note was, was, was twofold, really, two points that they were hammering home uh, against uh, federal spending and the level of federal spending. And one, the increased scope of government spending that we've seen over the course of the pandemic, and they are pairing it back from, you know, the biggest deficit since the Second World War, but it's still relatively compared to 2019, higher levels of government spending. And they're saying it's coming at the cost of the private sector. So if you're a business, it's not just the case you're competing against other businesses when you want to invest capital. You're now increasing against the public sector for projects that you might undertake. So there's one unfair advantage, they point out, where private sector is bearing the cost. And the other one, very quickly here, just to note, is they're saying because you're competing with this excess government spending, it's making the job of the Bank of Canada that much harder in terms of raising interest rates to fight inflation. They're essentially doing it alone, and they have to, as a result, raise interest rates and take interest rates even higher than they would have, say, otherwise had to. So at the end of the day, when this is all said and done, we're paying higher borrowing costs because of where the Bank of Canada's policy rate is going to end up instead of where it could have been. Well, and and of course, it ripples through the entire economy. We have a, a, an economy built on credit. And then you add on inflationary pressures, like your cost inputs besides interest rates are going up. Obviously, energy jumps out front with that. And yeah, I just don't see where this, they're on top of you know, there's been a lot of criticism of the central bank saying you're not you're you're way behind on the inflation curve. But I'd say on the growth curve here too. I mean, the only saving grace I see in Canada, and it's so ironic, is that the government, especially in Alberta, probably in 
Saskatchewan to some degree, Newfoundland, but the federal government is going to get a windfall thanks to the most hated commodity in the country, and that's oil. It's exactly right, and it's where it's coming from. But, you know, even just to say this this nominal economic growth that we've been seeing these last couple of years, such a result of the increased government spending and this lack of realization, it was even Janet Yellen the last couple of weeks uh, going before Congress in this supposed leak of whether or not she hinted to the president that all this excess spending may be inflationary. And of, of course, it's going to be inflationary. And it's the fact that the two le- the two authorities, whether it's fiscal spending or monetary policy, uh, they're working against one another. Well, you know what kills me is that I'm really glad you're bringing up that point, because every time I hear like the economy's doing X or Y and I'm going, well, why wouldn't it? The problem was never going to be the first year when you're, it's sort of like throwing a party and you borrowed a million dollars to do it. It's going to be a heck of a party. Well, the, the, the problem was the hangover, you know, and as they say, partial that's getting bailed out by record high oil prices and, and natural gas and et cetera. But I've always thought, of, you know, when I hear news reports, not acknowledging that, of course, we were going to have a decent recovery when you're borrowing that much money and pumping it into the system. Exactly. It was credit. It was spending that was available. And, and it made, as we saw, I mean, it was the, the, the effort into the pandemic. I mean, everywhere you looked, whether it was relief for wages or it was relief for businesses and small business loans where you could forgive $10,000, you know, it, it was left, right and center. And it was to keep the economy going in, in their best efforts. Uh, but of course, you know, when we're talking about it and we're starting to see it and we're hearing the consequences. Yeah. And we're hearing the hangover from it, you know, straightforward when you have to of course, that was going to cause inflation, a 27% increase in money supply in a year. What do you think is going to happen when you flood the system with that much money, record low interest rates? So uh, their, their key for government is to have people not recognize those connections. You know, it's to not make that connection between, hey, when we were sending out nonstop checks to people who were not financially, uh, you know, impacted by the pandemic, we were socially, we were health wise, et cetera. You know, over 80 cents on the dollar went to people who were not impacted. So you get all of this combination together. Presto, you've got inflation. And as you say, now the Bank of Nova Scotia being critical that, hey, the government isn't really reigning in spending to that degree. In fact, it's making their job harder for the central bank to slow inflation down. Exactly right, Mike. And, you know, it, it just to acknowledge it, because we got the numbers this week, you can't not acknowledge it, that, that inflation print in Canada in May, we had a 7.7 print. And, and I just love Every month you read these reports from the economics departments and they warn next month is going to be worse. And Bank of Montreal shocked me this week when they said next month expect an eight handle. So inflation to begin with 8% in the month of June. Which is really the bottom line is what we're paying for our homes or, you know, I'm saying the maintenance of our home or our rent. I'm always, you know, with those, I I leave it at this. I won't go further. I promise. Don't roll your eyes. But but I I do. I hear the inflation numbers. No, I'm talking about what does it mean to me? I'm spending more at the gas pump, 48% increase from a May, May a year ago. I'm spending, you know, my property taxes are up. It's my food price. I'm always looking at the stuff we can't avoid. I don't care about the inflationary pressure on my clothing. I look like hell, so I'm not going to buy anything anyway. So, you know, I can put those off, but I can't put off food, clothing, you know, rent style of shelter or maintenance on my house. And man... I think they made a bit of a mess of it, and you've just cheered us up saying it's not going to get better. Rob, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. And remember, you can find Rob at bordergold.com, bordergold.com, and you can read the latest commentary from Rob on gold, on silver, et cetera, what's happening in that marketplace. Good stuff. Time now for the quote of the week. You know, the one-sided nature of the debate over fossil fuel emissions and climate change in general 
has been driven by ideology. It's not science and certainly not practicality. And we're now witnessing the fallout in terms of things like record high gas and diesel and fertilizer costs, which also translates to higher food prices. But you know what? There's another important aspect that characterizes the climate debate, and that is elitism. I think maybe best illustrated when you see the private jets or the first-class hotel rooms and restaurants attended by celebrities, captains of industry, and of course, virtue-signaling politicians at every climate fest, including the most recent one in Glasgow. I mean, it's understandable that many suggest it's the creme de la creme telling the rest of us how to live. Very much like, by the way, Klaus Schwab's Great Reset Agenda. You can't help but notice there's a significant overlap of attendees at these events. The standard of living in the developed world is built on the pervasive use of fossil fuels, which continues to power our economies. Yet at events like COP26, developed nations demand that developing countries use renewable energy and forego the use of fossil fuels. You know, Bjorn Blomberg points out that G7 nations have gone so far as to announce they'll no longer fund fossil fuel development abroad. Great. At the same time, the EU and US is pushing OPEC to increase oil production. At the same time, they send checks to their citizens so their consumption of fossil fuels isn't curtailed by higher prices. While these same nations push to increase coal production. I mean, you can't make it up. As Ted Nordhaus, executive director of the Breakthrough Institute, summed up, the real outcome of COP26 meetings is to further entrench the sad reality that the global poor are on their own. Which brings me to the quote of the week by Nigeria's vice president, Professor Yemi Osabayo. In a statement issued just after the Infrastructure Solutions Summit organized by the Africa Finance Corporation just over a week ago, in quotes, no country in the world has been able to industrialize using renewable energy. And we've been asked to industrialize using renewable energy when everybody else in the world knows we need gas-powered industries for business. We need to have investments in fossil fuels. We need energy access for development. That's the way to go. We actually need to create room for investments, but not just in natural gas for export, but for cooking and industry for our everyday lives. I'm trying to think which cliche I can drum up today to talk about how things are changing, because my goodness gracious, I mean, every week it's the same thing, as I said off the top of the show, there's so much happening. But for me, the difference is that it's impacting us so directly right now, which is why I'm very pleased to get the chief investment officer of realinvestmentadvice.com. Lance is with me again, Lance Roberts. Lance, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely. Always happy to be You know, I was thinking uh, when I'm listening to so much and I, I, you know, I need to get a life because all I do is sort of read economic or financial stuff. And boy, I wish that wasn't true, but it, it really is true. Right. But the one of the things that sort of drives me nuts right now is that all the focus on are we in recession or not? Are we going to be in recession or not? I couldn't care less. You know, a recession is two consecutive quarters of negative growth. Well, so what if we managed to just get 0.1% growth so we didn't hit it? You know, because the U.S. had a, de a declining GDP in the first quarter, so they may get there. You know, that kind of stuff. Uh, I don't know. What are you, what are you hearing from your people? Because you have to do more practical things with real investment advice. Well, it, it is. And look, you're, you're absolutely right. You know, you know, we count a recession as two negative quarters. But the problem with all this is, of course, is that we're using all this lagging mm -hmm. data to try to calculate that. And, you know, and, and let's go back to just a, a trip through history here just for a moment. You know, back in December of 2007, I know that's a long time ago, 
But I wrote an article then saying we are about to be in or are in the worst recession since the Great Depression. Now, all of the data was telling us that, but there was the there was no evidence in that in that particular moment we were in a recession. Fast forward a year later, the market's down 50 percent. December of 2008, the National Bureau of Economic Research comes out and says, oh, yeah, that recession, it started in December of 07, a full year earlier. And, and so by the time that you that somebody comes up and says, hey, we're in a recession, it's too late to do anything about it in terms of managing your money, protecting yourself, et cetera. The, if we take a look at real-time data, what's going on, take a look at these Philly, like the recent Philly Fed manufacturing index, negative 3.3% this week. Take a look at what's happening with sentiment across the board, um, investor positioning. All these things are real-time indicators. And even the market itself is a good leading indicator that we are either in or about to be in a recession. Uh, but don't wait for it to get here to make a change. It'll be too late. Well, I guess the significance only is if we get that level of slowdown, the Federal Reserve may not raise interest rates. And Canada is greatly influenced in the same way. I mean, the fact that uh, Powell went three quarters of a percent and then we got our inflation number this week at 7.7%. So it's all in the same stuff, uh, you know. And so now we're going to go three quarters of a percent next month. So I guess it's they're waiting to see when they kill the economy, which is hardly as you say. They'll find out they killed the economy about two months after they've already killed. You know, the, the, the funeral's already taken place. But I guess that's the significance is where interest rates are going. And that's what impacts us directly. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, on Friday, the markets jumped about two and a half percent here in the in the States because the University of Michigan Consumer in, in, Index came out. And it showed that inflation expectations actually dropped pretty sharply. And, and immediately, the, the market began to price in less Fed rate hikes. And in fact, here's the interesting thing. And we've been talking about this for a while. I've written several articles at Real Investment Advice um, about you know, how the Fed will not be able to hike rates nearly as much as they expect because of the impact to the markets. But more importantly, the markets already had monetary tightening going on. We have high interest rates. The 10-year Treasury is up over 3%. The two-year Treasury is at 3%. That's a big surge on the short-term rates. Now, those are important because that's your credit card debt and those are your auto loans and house loans, right? So on both sides of that scale, consumers are getting hit by higher rates. And of course, inflation, as you just talked about a second ago, gas prices, oil prices, energy prices, food prices, that's all tightening against the consumer. That's all well in advance of what the Fed is doing. So now the Fed's in this box. Here's the real problem. The Fed needs to get interest rates off of zero. They know a recession's coming. And if they get caught at zero, they've got no monetary policy tools to fight that recession. So they're just hoping that they can get up to two and a half, two and three quarters percent on the Fed funds rate. So they have some room to come down and lower those rates and and, and start to accommodate, you know, provide that accommodative easing to the economy when the recession hits. And it's just a race against time right now. Uh, for, for, forgive me for taking a shot at these people, but you know, those numbers of years we had people who were, day. yeah, but who were anti-capitalist, for example, and they'd come and they'd talk about unfettered capitalism. I mean, it was a, a joke then, but come on, everybody's just waiting for more manipulation by our central banks or our governments with fiscal policy. You know, I mean, we've never in my lifetime, I can't think of another era where it is more manipulated, you know, so are we really looking at what companies are doing? Or are we just waiting for the Fed to do either way, you know, more tightening or less tightening? Because I kind of think if it comes to a point where the Fed starts easing again, man, that'll be the green light for markets. Oh, it will be. And, and look, you're absolutely right. 
Um, I, I actually wrote an article earlier this week and, you know, talking about, um, you know, buy and hold type investing and, and the problems you run into. It all sounds great in theory while markets are rising, but when markets decline and you're down 20, 30 percent, you know, investors never buy and hold. They always wind up panic selling. But the important part of that, that note was talking about something that Larry McDonald said. He writes the Bear, the Bear Traps report. And he made a great statement the other day. He's talking about we used to have free, you know, free and fair discovery in markets. Now, this is pre-2008, mind you. Uh, we used to have this fair market price discovery, and you could go in and buy stocks based on fundamentals, those type of things. Since 2008, we have completely removed that price discovery in the market. And, and so when you have no price discovery, fundamentals really, and I hate to say this because I'm a fundamental investor, but fundamentals really matter a whole lot less. And now everybody's focused on like kind of like Pavlov's dogs, waiting for the Fed to ring the bell uh, to come in and start buying more stocks. And there's really two key points about this. And you, and you brought this up. First of all, you know, everybody's talking about the recessions coming. If we have a recession, this will be the first time in history that we have the most well-forecasted recession by Wall Street, because Wall Street never forecasts a recession. Uh, the second thing is, is that, you know, in a bear market, in a true bear market, Mike, and you know this because you and I have both been through real bear markets, at the bottom of bear markets, 74, 87, 2000, 2007, nobody wants to own stocks. Right now, every I'm getting more and more emails every day. Is the bottom here? Is it time to buy? Am I is it time to get back in? Which probably tells me we're not near a bottom of, of the bear market yet. But that's just that that whole mentality to your point that we've just created, you know, this whole analysis of markets that's solely based around Fed manipulation. You know, it's interesting. If people, by the way, just to digress for a sec, saw you and then saw me, they'd know I lived through the 1929 bear market. <laughs> and you're talking 2007, eight. <laughs> so, well, you know. But your point is so well taken here <laughs> that, uh, you know, a huge number of investors have no idea what a bear market looks like, have no idea that how grinding it is, how, you know, relentless it is. And, and I agree with you also in the point that, again, when I listen to all of these uh, shows, and, and there's some good Good people involved, I know that. But when I listen to these shows, my goodness, the buy side is a bias. It's it, every question is what you're saying. Okay, yeah, we've we've had the down. When should I buy? Doesn't matter what. And there's some stuff you but you may not well be buying for ten years or seven years or five years. It may not be a good idea. But I, I'm thinking, especially in the tech sector, I, I so clearly remember 2000. You know, and, and oh, good. Did we wait 15 years, was it, for the NASDAQ to come back to that level? People really should understand that. Only to put the alert on, the warning sign up, the I'm going to be a little more cautious than, hey, it's a dip, I'm jumping in. Oh, no, it, very true. And, and, you know, and, and this is going to be the interesting thing. So when the Fed starts cutting rates, then the, the idea is going to be we need to go buy growth stocks. So everybody's going to run in and they're going to start buying Apple and Microsoft and Amazon and Google and Meta. Now it's not Facebook anymore. It's Meta, whatever. Um, and they're going to buy those stocks again because that's what worked before. And we're going to see them, you know, buying a lot of these companies that don't generate earnings. We're, you know, the, the, you know, a lot of these, what I've been picking on Kathy Wood a lot lately with ARC funds because, you know, it's just that was kind of the poster child for the speculative investing that we saw in 2020 and 2021. But they're going to run in and start buying those stocks again, you know, thinking that they're all going to come back. These companies don't generate earnings or revenue. And, and to your point, 
Um, there's going to be companies that come out of whatever this bear market is, and it'll be companies that are driving technology. You know, uh, the AMDs, the NVIDIAs, the Apples, the Microsofts very well may come out of this. But there's going to be a lot of companies that are just kind of left in the dust. And I won't be surprised. And, and Mike, you remember the dot-com bust in, in 20 and in, in 2000. There were a lot of companies that went to zero, period. And Global Crossing, Enron, WorldCom, and we can go right down the list. They never came back. And, I, and again, I'm only, I'm so glad you're saying it, but I'm hearing it as terms of a warning. It is not so simple as throw your dart and jump in. And I want people to walk away with that. Now, let me ask you on the other side, um, you know, one of the things obviously uh, where you are, you know, down in, in your area in Houston and, and the, the whole state and where we are in Canada, especially listening today from Alberta, maybe Newfoundland too, and Saskatchewan to a lesser extent in northern BC, about the whole energy complex. Now, and I really want you to just tell me I'm an idiot. Um, but You're an idiot. Oh, there you go. Okay, so we're done. And that's it for Lance Roberts. We've been happy to have him <laughs> on the air with us. <laughs> but Exactly. Um so that's the one area where I'm a dip buyer. I'm not there yet um, because I just don't see them st solving the structural energy problems. I mean, I hear uh, President Biden. I mean, uh, I'm trying to think of a polite way to say it, senile, but silly. You know, I mean, you don't encourage more production by raising taxes. I looked at his budget. They got 11 tax increases on oil companies. I mean, I don't even know where to go with that kind of stuff. You have uh, your secretary of energy, Jennifer Grantham literally admitting on CNN, we need oil production or, or refined products right now, but we won't need them in five to 10 years. Well, how long do you think it takes to get a new refinery capacity going or a new, you know, significant oil production? I, it's just, to me, so that's why it seems hopeless that, that we are going to be in this sort of energy, let's call it scarcity for a moment, you know, kind of situation with ups and downs, but that's the broad trend. No, I don't disagree with you at all. You know, there's and there's there's really kind of, you, you put a whole lot into that package, right, that we need to kind of unwind yes, here a bit. Um, so first of all, we haven't built a refinery since 1976 because primarily of all the, you know, if you want to build a refinery, you need to build it on the coast so you can ship in product to get it refined, et cetera. Well, nobody on the coastlines, you know, especially in California, want refineries because of all the ecological issues, right? So we've, we've, put these barriers in place to build refineries. Now, fast forward to where we are today, you now have an administration that shut down the XL pipeline from Canada to uh, Cushing, Oklahoma. We have put on additional re regulations on oil companies. We've demonized oil companies and, and said, hey, y'all guys are going to be, and that's we're talking about this administration. You guys are going to be out of business in five years. They went and got BlackRock, one of the largest mutual, uh, largest fund managers in the world, to go get their pension funds together to exclude energy companies from their pension portfolios, extracting the ability for these companies to get access to capital uh, to go make drilling investments, et cetera. But if you want to build a refinery, that's awesome. You need a 10-year window that says, okay, I can invest these billions of dollars to build this refinery. I'm going to need 10 years just to recoup my investment. You need that kind of window. And this administration, to your point, is saying, look, in five years, we're going to be all green. And that's awesome, except it's a complete fallacy. Because if you take a look at an electric vehicle as an example, and this is always this is always the example used, right? Take an ice combustion engine, an electric vehicle, and at 90,000 miles, the ice combustion engine now is, is less efficient than the EV, right? So, so there's the reason to buy it. Well, the problem is always comparing a 125 mile range car to a 400 mile range car. 
if you compare those both to 400 mile range cars, because it takes a much larger battery, the cost to break even is 400,000 miles. And, you know, they, everybody forgets about the footprint, the carbon footprint required to build an ICE car versus an EV. It's about three times as much to, or two times as much to build an EV in terms of the input cost going into the vehicle just to build it as compared to an ICE combustion car. So, you know, the, the whole transition to this, you know, this kind of solar wind green idea, it, it's a great dream. It is totally not based any type of logic or reality of what is required from oil into producing the energy and the components to build those vehicles. And, and, and to your point, we're not ever going to catch up with that supply demand imbalance. Oil is going to be very volatile. It got a little bit overbought here recently. It's going to have it's having a correction, likely a little bit more to go. But to your point, you're absolutely right. Every time you get these big correction oil prices, I'd be a buyer. Uh, let's talk about the rest of the market too. Uh, uh, from what you said earlier, I just <laughs> excuse me want to reiterate: you're sort of cautious when we look at the market as a whole, the stock side of as a whole. Yeah, no, it just it's just you know right now we're going through a process, and you, you know if, if you take a look, for instance, at forward PEs, forward PEs have come down to about 15 times earnings, and you're starting to hear a lot of companies come out saying, "Oh, valuations are cheap. We're back to where we were pre-pandemic." Okay, a they weren't cheap pre-pandemic. But even the forward P's have come down now, that's solely a function of price. The P has come down in P-E ratios, price divided by earnings. The P has come down, the E has not. We have not ratcheted down those earnings expectations. Earnings are still growing into 2023. When we get into a recession or a much lower economic environment, we're gonna have negative earnings growth. That E is gonna come down, which means that we have more work to do price-wise in terms of this market to get valuations and expectations realigned. So I'm not saying markets are going to crash here and go down another 30%, but we may get a fairly strong rally here over the course of the next week or so. Markets are very oversold. Get a rally back to 3,900, 4,000. I'd be raising cash, rebalancing allocations, hedging risk to some degree, because I think we're going to come down at least retest lows, if not set new lows by the end of summer. And, and again, important advice for people. You know, I just think the era, now you've been writing about this, which I love and, and saying it for more than that, but the era of just close your eyes and hold for the rest of your life seems to be older. I mean, and your example about sort of the aggressive tech stocks like ARC, I mean, my, my favorite, Victor is going to be laughing when he hears this, because I always talk about Peloton because people understand it, though. You know, they know what a Peloton bike is. They may not. Yeah, it's a coat rack. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> At our house, it has been. Uh, but, you know, down 90% in the stock. But so many of the others, you know, Netflix, excuse me, 70%. So the list is a long one. Um, you know, those, those ones aren't coming back quick. You know, if you're sitting there holding. But the other side of that market that I need your uh, uh, opinion on is, man, bondholders have been killed. I mean, killed. And when you're only, you know, if I've locked in and I've got a 10-year at, say, 1.5%, and as you say, it's over three now, how many years is that just in my interest before I get back to zero on that? I mean, it's like 10 and 15 years in a lot of cases. Yeah. Well, remember, if I own it, okay, so a couple of things. First of all, if I bought a bond at 1.5%, now, now, importantly, let's we've got to define here actual bonds versus an ETF, Okay. <laughs> But if I bought an actual 10-year treasury, and let's say I was stupid and I bought that 10-year treasury at the low point, half percent interest back in March of 2020, terrible purchase at that point. And I'm really regretting that now because interest rates are up to three. In 10 years, I'm going to get all my money back plus that interest. So 
you know, the beautiful thing about owning bonds is I always get my principal back. You never get that guarantee with stocks or anything else. So you can make mistakes in the bond market and be okay. You may not make a lot of money, but you'll be okay. Now, the thing about this is, is very important is that we also buy bonds for capital appreciation. And, and this is one thing that we, we need to remember as investors. We buy stocks because we expect the S&P index to go higher or lower, right? So we're either buying or shorting stocks based on that index. Bonds work exactly the same way. If I buy bonds because I'm expecting interest rates to go lower, that means the price of the bond goes up in value. If I, if I think that interest rates are going to go up, I may not want to buy bonds right now, or I may want to short bonds because interest rates and, and bond prices work uh, against each other. Now, right now, we're talking about inflation may have peaked, and this is why you're seeing Fed expectations starting to come down for how much more they're going to hike rates, and they're tapering their balance sheet. If we go back to 2018, when the Fed was reducing their balance sheet and hiking interest rates as they are now, interest rates fell rather sharply, which means there was a big return in bond prices over the course of that time frame. So, and if we're going to get into a recession, bond prices are going to go up. So as a, as a portfolio manager right now, we're starting to, to work our way into adding more duration to our bond side of our portfolio. Still, we, we still have some access to, to equities that we like. They're providing big dividend yields, but we also hold a lot of cash right now because we're waiting for that buying opportunity to come along and we're not there yet. But we, there's a strong case to be made that the Fed is going to break something in the economy or the markets, and bond money's going to rotate into bonds over the course of that time frame as we go through that corrective cycle. As a safety play, people are going to be looking to hide money in those treasuries, uh, at least for the time being. And, and I think more money will be made in bonds over the next year. And we can come back in a year from now, we can see you know, how close I was. But I think you'll make more money in bonds over the next year than you're making stocks. Well, I'm not going to let you wait a year either. Don't, you, you know me too well, and you're saying, I don't want Campbell to ask me to come back in three months. <laughs> tough, exactly. tough luck, I'm going to. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, but but it, that's a wonderful summation of, uh, of the environment that people are operating in. It's one that requires intellectual flexibility. We're not in the, you know, the, the last 10 years have changed. You know, the interest rate scenario is much more prominent today than it was, say, going back just two years or three years ago when it was that 40-year downtrend. Uh, so much to uh, keep on top of. So I want to finish with just one question that we didn't touch on, and that's your take on uh, gold. Yeah. So real, real quick, I, I just can I say one more thing about yes, bonds please. and then we'll talk about gold? Yeah. So if I told you today, and I, and I meant to say this, and I just forgot, but if I told you that stocks had, had just had the biggest bear market since 1788, would you be interested in buying stocks here, right? You, now, theoretically, if I just had the biggest bear market in stocks in 1788, I'm like, hmm, I'd yeah. probably better look at buying some stocks. That's what just happened to bonds this year. The biggest drawdown in bonds in 1788, there has never been a year where you've had this big of a drawdown where subsequent years going forward were not grossly positive returns from owning that asset. Okay, gold. Um, I, I, we actually own gold in our portfolio right now. It's, you know, it is, it, gold is a function of real rates and what's going on with, with, you take a look at the 10 year treasury adjusted for inflation. There's a very big correlation between real rates and what happens with gold. And, you know, gold is, has not, and, and again, a, a lot of people very disappointed with gold this year. It's not been the hedge for inflation that a lot of people hope for, right? Uh, by the way, neither was Bitcoin. But that's another story for another day. But yeah, gold hasn't really done that hedging 
that people thought it was going to get out of, uh, you know, for inflation. Gold has become in, in, in years a much better defensive hedge for fear in the markets. And the one thing that we have lacked this year, and this has been a very, look, we're down 21% on 20, 21% on equities this year, but it's been a very orderly decline. We haven't had a big spike in volatility. There's not been a big spike in fear in the markets yet. Um, but that's really what gold likes. Gold likes that when there's a lot of fear in the markets and money's moving into a safe haven type trade to get away from stocks. We haven't had that yet. Um, I think that if we start to really break down here, if we start to see a recession, you'll want to have some gold in your portfolio because it should start to perform much better in a recessionary type environment, much like we saw in 2008. Realinvestmentadvice.com. I'm telling people to go there. Why? Because Lance publishes, it's absolutely free, a free newsletter. He writes the blog and you can keep up with his thoughts in that way. And as you can tell, you know, he's a, a deep thinker about the various aspects for investors. You know, I started off by saying, you know, all the sort of economic jargon doesn't mean much to us until we drill down. Well, that's what Lance does at realinvestmentadvice.com. Lance, as always, thank you and give it up. You're coming back soon. <laughs> Give it up. My pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Time now for the shocking stat of the week. And it's an issue I want to keep on the front burner. And I'm sure many will be happy if I didn't. Because that's the threat of starvation for hundreds of millions of people around the world. Thanks, first, to the massive rising fertilizer costs, which is related to the war on fossil fuels. That includes natural gas, which is needed to produce ammonia and urea. I mean, the price has well over doubled now in the last year. And it's already resulted in a 30% decline in the use of fertilizer. And of course, then you get a drop in crop yield. Then you got to add on the sanctions on Russia and the accompanying drop in corn and wheat production uh, and exports coming out of Ukraine too. And it's a huge, massive, significant problem. As I said, for the last 10 months, when shortages became all too clear, the prospect of millions of people starving, well, it's appalling made more appalling because it's the direct result of government policy. Which brings me to the shocking stat of the week. According to the World Food Program, that's the world's largest humanitarian organization, up to 811 million people go to bed hungry every night. And the number of those facing acute food insecurity has more than doubled. A total of 50 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger in 45 countries. You know, in just two years, the number of severely food insecure people has increased to 345 million from 135 million in 82 countries, a jump of 210 million people. I mean, it's the stuff, of course, of human tragedy, but you know what? Of social revolution too, a political upheaval. It's something that we should be paying far more attention to, get out of our sort of Western world and think about what's happening on a broader, significant level on a global basis. And as I promised, hey, guess what? I'm going to continue doing that on Money Talks. When we have the highest levels of debt for individuals, for uh, governments, et cetera, it's a global problem. Obviously, we've got to continue to talk about interest rates, especially when the rate of change is so high and the impact it has on individuals. Well, nowhere do we have bigger levels of debt for, as individuals than our mortgages. So I want Ozzy Jurek to join me here. Lots of questions for Ozzy, but you can find him at ozbuzz.ca. Ozzy, let's start talking about, let's start with talking about the mortgage rate in increases that we've had uh, and and the impact, because of course, there's so many variables involved. How long is your mortgage? When are you paying it off? 
you know, uh, is it a variable rate? Is it a fixed rate? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, and you're making the point uh, that that one of our listeners actually wrote me and said, well, he says, you see, it's $12 per each quarter. So a $12 increase in mortgage payments for each quarter percent interest rate increase. So he claims that if you had four increases and it took a $100,000 mortgage, that'd be 1% would be $1,000. You divide that by 12 and it's $83. That would be correct if it was paid off in one year, but we're talking about amortized payments over 25 years, and that's why it's only $48 for $100,000 over the 25 years. Now, I do get his point, because at 600000 times $48, that's a $300 increase, and that's just really only 1%. If you look at the United States, they're already up 3%. Well, if it was 3% at $600,000, which is about the average mortgage in Vancouver, well, that's $900 more. And if you had a million-dollar mortgage, well, it's $1,500 more. So it does bite, no question. And especially, okay, we've talked about this earlier, but, you know, what is it, Nine point, uh, sorry, 7.7% inflation rate coming subsequent to the U.S. raising by three-quarters of a point has the market saying the likelihood of a three-quarter percent move in uh, July by the Bank of Canada is through the roof now. I mean, it's pretty much consensus that we're going to get a three-quarter percent. So I'm thinking of those poor people on the variable rate mortgages. My goodness, Uh, because they're going to move right away with the prime rate. They move the same day. Man, they're going to be paying more money. It's no question. And, you know, so I I look at that, and uh, I have a good friend in, in Germany a uh, very senior uh, mid, mid-level bank, and he thinks we're going to go 1% in the United States and maybe 1% in Canada. So, so okay, so are rates that important? Now, in my experience, rates have never been totally as important if I, if I believe the value of my house is increasing. Look, we've had mortgage rates of 12% and 14%. We still bought houses, right? But the psychology of it is, if the owners think prices are rising, they'll find a way to make the payments. If they don't, they want to sell. And that's what we're seeing in countries like the United States, in Canada, New Zealand. All of a sudden, those hot markets are turning cold because of the psychology of it. Ozzy, I'm going to come back to that in a second. But I want to, you know, we talked about this last week, but we also talked about it two weeks ago, or two months ago, rather. And that is, it's the rate of change that's really providing the problem. People haven't had an opportunity psychologically to adjust. It makes them feel more uncertain. Like, are we going to get three quarters of a point in July? And the market says yes now. Oh my gosh, what's next? It's that amazing rate and shift that I know we've been talking about, but I think that's the key point. You know, if people were guaranteed we'd arrive at a place and the psychology could settle and become used to it. No question. And as you make the point now with a variable rate where, you know, maybe 40 to 50% of the people are at, Every time there's even the slightest increase, it immediately settles in into now. Some variable rates uh, just increase the interest rate and the payment stays the same, but you are knowing that you're starting to owe more money. Anyways, the point is that we are around the world feeling the pressure of those those rates. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it, we have a tendency, and, and of course, it's understandable. We're focusing on the domestic market, but man, you look at some of the, you know, you go around, and I know you've been writing about this on Ozbuzz, but uh, boy, some of the bubbliest markets in the world, wow, you've seen a, a slam on the brakes there. Yeah, Bloomberg Economics shows also that out of 19 OECD countries, they have a price to rent income ratio that's now higher today than it was in the 2008 financial crisis. Now, that is also another aspect of why house prices for a while simply have, you know, run out of steam in terms of uh, 
uh, going up. And this slowdown in housing, though, has, and you argued about that many, many times, it's going to have a ripple effect on the whole economy. I mean, household wealth gets eroded. Our confidence gets eroded. Our potential future development is not going to happen. All of those things are dependent on housing. Well, the other thing is, you know, as we were building up personal debt and we always got warnings, you know, really for I don't know how many years, it's year after year, oh, don't build up your personal debt. And I always said, no, the personal debt isn't the problem while asset prices are rising faster than your debt level. So if I'm increasing my debt level and the asset prices are doubling, it's not a problem. Obviously, we're in a different environment now because the cost of that borrowing is going up. The debt doesn't change you know, or, or might move up, but the asset value is dropping. That's what spells trouble. That's the key I was trying to make. Exactly. That's it. As long as I feel, hey, look, we, we, we paid 14% interest rates and still bought property because we thought properties were rising faster than that. We no longer feel that way. Let's talk. I, I, I want to come because I don't want to lose time without our, uh, talking about Calgary and really interesting, the conversion of offices to rentals. Yeah, we're always being fairly negative on most governments, but you've got to salute the city of Calgary who put aside $100 million to convert office towers to residential rental units. And of course, everybody was poo-pooing the idea, but really there was a 30% vacancy. In fact, in Calgary, downtown has more office space than Regina, Saskatoon, or Winnipeg together, right? So they wanted to do some and particularly revitalize what they called Calgary's desolate core. And this is what, what the government said. Anyways, of that project, three developers have taken on those buildings and they're removing 414,000 square feet office space and creating 401 residential units. And they're grabbing that first 31 million of that program, 100 million. So it's working. Interesting stuff. Before I let you go, I want to come to something else that I could be talking about a variety of subjects. One of the things that I've been astounded by is how governments pursue policies that have already historically failed, proven not to work, and yet they want to repeat them. I'm seeing that, by the way, uh, in talk uh, in, in climate change. We've got government saying we need more supply of oil. Obviously, we need more f- refinery capacity. And then they turn around and does stuff that would be nothing but discouraging it. And I want to take that to the real estate market because my jaw dropped when I saw that BC is contemplating rent controls. Talk about a failed policy nonstop. It discourages, and we've got a supply problem. Talk about discouraging people from developing more supply. It's, it's unbelievable the level of misunderstanding in so many of our government policies, but this is a beauty. Oh my gosh, you want a problem? Oh, put in rent control. Well, the thing is, you know, we have a, one of my longtime uh, subscribers. He has 120 units, and he says, look, he says, um, our costs went up 20%, not not 6 or 20% in the last two years. At the same time, we were frozen our rent increases at 1.5%. But he says rent controls mean that people will always stay there. Let's say the, the lady's husband dies. She's in a three-bedroom unit. She's going to stay there because it's only 850 a month. In the meantime, people, families with kids that need a three-bedroom unit can't get any at any price, even if they were to pay the $1,500. So we are, we, are, we are saving at the wrong end. And so far more developers now will stop building rental buildings if these policies are implemented. And finally, Mike, he says, in Alberta, for years, ample, ample rental units have been constructed. Rents are lower in BC, although there are no rental caps whatsoever. Okay, let me well, let's let's let me throw the knockout punch here. So think about the environment we're in. It, if you want to develop and get, uh, produce the needed uh, units that we have, whether it's single, detached, townhouse, or multi, and that is oh, good. 
my real estate borrowing costs have just gone up through the roof and they're continuing to going. And at the same time, we'll make sure when your heating bills are going up or your property taxes are going, we'll make sure you can't collect it. I mean, it's, it really is unfathomable, the level of ignorance and misunderstanding of how markets work. Well, the, what I find uh, really uh, almost frightening is that the, the, the devil is always the developer. The devil is the homeowner. That we are all these devils that have any kind of a, want to build our wealth for our family and 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 uh, create an environment where we can grow, uh, and it, for some reason we are guilty. Yeah. You know? Well, it's just blown up in our faces when it comes to oil, gas, and refinery capacity. When you say you know seven years of vilification, and we're surprised. Hey, why don't why don't you want to do more yeah. of it? Like it yeah. is mind-boggling, and unfortunately. We're going to pay a price. We are paying the price. They're lucky that a lot of in the public don't make the connections, whether it's affordable housing. You go, well, you're 25% of the cost with all your, your levies and taxes, et cetera. And in British Columbia, at least Alberta can smile this way. But in BC, if you dare buy a house, we'll slap a property purchase tax on you. You know, it's, yeah. it's just nonstop. And I'm afraid that's the environment we're living in. Isn't that true? I'm Mr. Cheerful today, Ozzy. Thank God you're here. <laughs> hey, by the way, Here's a cheerful thought to finish on. Ozzy and his team with Ralph, et cetera, were playing in the Special Olympics Invitational Golf Tournament. As you know, Ozzy's a big supporter. And I, did, I kept track of it the whole time. He didn't hurt a single person. He didn't hurt. That's I want to dispel the rumors right away. In fact, uh, no, they lost 21 golf balls in the water at Mayfair Lakes, but that's nothing. That's being picky. Uh, as far as I know, the St. John Ambulance who followed them around was not busy. Ozzy, thank you for your support. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for that vote of confidence. You know, I, I noticed that you kept throwing me golf balls. You you did feel sorry for me. I did. <laughs> well, I hope that I would like to leave, uh, to leave you with that thought because you, you talk about this all the time. But Mark Twain says, never argue with stupid people. They'll drag you down to their level, and then they beat you with experience. Yeah, I love that. They've got a lot more practice. Go to ozbuzz.ca. Tonight, Ozzy will be posting a new a new edition, ozbuzz.ca, for Ozzy Jurek. I'll be back. Let's go live to the trading desk now with Victor Adair. Uh, Vic, uh, interesting conversation with Lance Roberts You know, earlier, uh, just talking about uh, the buy-side bias you know, for all of the marketplace, you know, we, we're looking to buy all the time, but man, I would looking at the declines and, and Tony, um, Tony Greer certainly talked to us about that, why it wasn't the time to be buying commodities yet. They have to have a sag down, but I know on victordare.ca, you have been chronicling that. And I think some will be surprised when they hear that copper's down 26%, for example. Yeah. Copper's really had a tumble this year from its all time highs at $5 for down to about three seventy five. Um, you know, th there's been there's, there's always a number of things that impact different markets. And one of the big movers, I think, in the market right now is just last week on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve increased those interest rates by 75 basis points. And that was the day that the U.S. dollar made a 20 year high and began to fall back from that level. That was the highest yield we've seen on the 10 year Treasury bond in 12 years. And since then, the yield has declined. In other words, interest rates in the real market have been falling since the Fed raised rates. And I think it's largely, if I could make this really, really simple, it's largely because the market's gone from worrying 
that inflation is going to lead us into a disaster to worrying about the Fed and other central banks are going to tighten you know, monetary policy and push us all into a recession. Yeah, it's funny. I was just talking to Lance about that in that I've never remember a time where more eyes are just simply focused on what government and its institutions like the central bank is going to do. You know, like it's if the central bank and, and not my, you know, our sentiments seem to change. Oh, recession's coming. I, I'm not worried about interest rates anymore. Oh, uh, it's it's a big recession, you know, or it's it's not coming. Oh, I'm worried this way. I mean, it's just incredible how the markets just seem to be on this uh, teeter totter. Well, yeah, I mean, that's what I trade, I guess, is the ebb and flow of emotion in the market. And I'm just as willing to be short something as to be long if I can manage the risk on the trade. But yeah, it's, I mean, people get a notion that, uh, let's say, let's look at the energy market. I mean, year to date, the energy shares, or particularly fossil fuels, have been the hottest sector in the market, just running away from everything else. And yet, here recently, we've had a very sharp decline, 20 to 30, in some cases, more than 30% decline in the energy share prices. And, you know, what changed? It's not like crude oil fell to $50, that's for sure. Uh, Let me just, I mean, the big story of the week, of course, was interest rates and, you know, the Fed jumping in, then we've got, uh, you know, our inflation rate coming in at 7.7%. And then all of a sudden, the consensus becomes Canada's going to raise interest rates three quarters of a percent. I mean, it's again, all about that, the unconditional fight against inflation, according to the Fed. Yeah, we're looking for the Bank of Canada, I think it's July the 13th, their next meeting, to raise rates by three quarters of a percent. I think one of the big banks came out and said, no, they're probably going to go a full percentage point. You know, so, you know, it, it, that's just out there. OK, that's so that's in the price. We've had the Toronto stock market come down 10 percent here, I guess, as, as oil prices have weakened and, and certainly as the energy share prices have weakened. The Canadian dollar was at 80 cents on the what I'm calling a key turn date, the 8th of May. And, and as the over the next 10 days or so, as the stock market in the United States fell and as commodity markets, whether you're talking wheat, corn, cotton, you know, crude oil, copper, as the commodity market fell, the Canadian dollar dropped uh, three cents, I think, in about uh, seven trading days, despite the fact that we've got higher interest rates, certainly in the short end, in Canada than we have in the United States. Just one more quick thing on that, though. It was interesting to see, uh, just as a bit of a lesson, so they make those announcements, and yet the interest rate market, you know, the bond yields, actually fall back. Yeah, well, I think the the bonds falling is kind of maybe a two-headed thing here. On the one hand, of course, the stock market's getting clocked, so maybe the bonds look a safe place to go. Maybe there is an alternative, you know. and the other side, obviously, is the recession worry. If we're going to go into a recession, being able to buy, call it risk-free government bonds at the best yield that you could get at any time over the past 12 years seems like a good idea. Well, obviously, that's exactly what Lance was thinking along those lines uh, when he said that he felt bonds were going to outperform stocks over that sort of one to two year period on the very reason you're laying out there. But obviously, we get to chronicle that every week. People get to follow what you're saying on victoradare.ca, victoradare.ca. And it's funny, I'm really big on that now, Vic, because 
there's no time left. I mean, there's things changing on a momentary basis, I always say, but you got to keep up. If you want to keep up to Victor's thoughts, go to victoradare.ca. Vic, have a terrific week. Thanks, Mike. Good talking with you. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. And you know what? It is a beauty. You know, one of the hallmark features, I think, of the climate change debate has been the propensity of our leaders and climate activists to not walk the walk. I guess that's a nicer way of saying they're hypocrites when it comes to what they say about climate action and then what they actually do. Like Bill Gates staying on his massive private yacht just before flying in a private jet to Glasgow's COP26. I think Jeff Bezos did the same thing. Or anti oil sands celebrities like Neil Young failing to recognize that his fortune was built on petroleum products, i.e. vinyl records, followed by cassette tapes, followed by CDs. Actually, pretty much every celebrity who wants to don the mantle of climate champion is living a life of extreme hypocrisy. Al Gore's name comes to mind immediately for me. For example, while making, and he's made, tens of millions of dollars warning about the imminent doom of climate Armageddon, Public records uh, requesting information from the Nashville Electric Service revealed that Al Gore, he's got a 20-room, 10,000-plus square foot mansion in Nashville, while the electrical footprint is more than 21.3 times larger than the average U.S. household. But what's not, not widely recognized, at least by the celebrities themselves, is the damage that kind of hypocrisy does in their effort to garner support from the public for climate action, which is why their actions, though, it's a serious consequence, so it's more than just the comic relief on occasion. Which brings me to this week's Goofy. You know, last week at a Montreal, they hosted the Canadian Grand Prix, you know, the Formula One racing. The entire circuit, by the way, has gained even more popularity thanks to the popular Netflix series, which introduced the sport to millions more people. One of the drivers, though, who drives for Aston Martin is Sebastian Vettel. Well, he arrives at the Montreal Grand Prix on a bicycle, wearing a t-shirt with the words, stop mining tar sands. And there was a picture below of a pipeline with the words, Canada's climate crime. Okay, across from the, this is incredible. Across from the Aston Martin label on his chest was the word Aramco. That is Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil giant. Gee, a little disconnect there. I do shake my head though at the breathtaking cognitive dissonance. Here's a driver of a Formula One race car that is fueled by high-octane gas, driving in a circuit with a monstrous carbon footprint. Now, I've always wondered or looked at between races, because they're all over the place, North America, Europe, of course, and Australia. Well, they transport the cars and equipment by these massive trucks when it's in Europe, but by sea when it's like Australia. And then, of course, personnel, and there's tons of personnel. I mean, a single team like Mercedes has 2,000 people involved in their Formula One. Well, of course... They go by air as well as some of the equipment. And that doesn't even come close to doing it justice, but I think you get the idea. And here we have a driver for a major team actually talking about the oil sands and climate change, driving for a team with a major sponsorship deal with Saudi Arabia's Aramco. As Alberta Energy Minister Sonia Savage states, Aramco, in quotes, is reputed to be the single largest contributor to global carbon emissions of any company since 1965. Come on, that is just one of those stories you have to file under. You can't make this stuff up. I, I, again, it, it just shakes my head, this lack of self-awareness of so many of the climate champions and protesters. I named a few, but there's so many. I could do a goofy on them 
almost on a weekly basis. But Sebastian, you're the big winner this week. Hey, just want to remind you, that's all the time we have today. Uh, but I, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank all the sponsors who helped us out with the Special Olympics. What a special time it was on the Invitational Golf Tournament. The Money Talks listeners who participated, Money Talks businesses who participated. You've made a huge difference. And I got to thank you from the bottom of my heart. In the meantime, hey, go out, have a terrific week. <laughs>